On Sunday, March 18th, 1855, at the ripe old age of 21, the great Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon took up the Bible itself as the theme of his sermon, much like I'm going to do this morning. And here's what he said. Here lies my text, this word of God. Here is the theme of my discourse, a theme which demands more eloquence than I possess, a subject upon which a thousand orators might speak at once, a mighty, vast, and comprehensive theme which might engross all eloquence throughout eternity, and still it would remain unexhausted. Surely that is true of the Bible, but surely it is true of every one of the subjects we're taking up in this series that we're calling Essential Truth. If you were with us last week, we took up the subject of God in about 30 or 35 minutes. How impossible is that? But as I said last week, I'll say again this week, even if we have a little bit of time to say just a handful of things, hopefully it's better to say some things than no things. And if those things that we share are true and if they're biblical, maybe they can steady us and deepen us and strengthen us in faith, in joy, and in love. And hopefully even still it can whet your appetite and mine to go looking for more. And so last week we took a look at God. That's the triangular looking thing up there. That our God is Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. And we considered that he is incomprehensible. That his ways are above our ways. That the knowledge of God is deeper than any of us could ever plunge. That he's incomprehensible, that we could not know him unless he revealed himself to us, and indeed he has. That wonder of wonders, our God has made himself known to us. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. And so we encouraged ourselves to seek him, that in the pages of Scripture we might know him. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and he knows me, says the Lord. We considered Ephesians 1, God the Father, who chose us in him before the foundations of the world and predestined us to adoption as sons. God the Son who came and took upon flesh for us and lived a holy life and died upon a cross to pay the penalty for our sins and rose from the dead that through him we might have the forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation to God. God the Father, God the Son, and then God the Holy Spirit who wooed us and opened our, the eyes of our heart that we might see our need and see Christ and trust in him and the Holy Spirit seals us and becomes a pledge from God to us of all of the promises that are going to come true. 
God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then we briefly looked at Exodus 34, where Moses said, show me your glory. And God said, this is what I'm like. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sins, yet who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. We came away from that sermon saying to ourselves, as we often say to our kids, hey, Macy, hey, Molly, Maddie, quit looking at the video in the, and look outside. See how beautiful it is? Wow, look at that. And how like we are. Sometimes we've got our eyes so focused on the news or so focused on the stock market or so focused on Facebook or so focused on Netflix or so focused on sports or so focused that we need someone to say, hey, look outside at the glory of God. Look down to the pages of Scripture where God has revealed himself. And so we, we gloried, even just for a bit last week, in our great God. Well, this morning we're going to look next at the Bible. Here lies my text, this word of God. Who can say enough? If you have your Bible, though, turn with me to 2 Timothy. We're going to look at a text of Scripture that is familiar to many of us. Maybe it's brand new to some of you, though. But even for those of you who may be familiar with it, hopefully we'll see in it some new things that will strengthen us and encourage us in our relationship with our great God. This is the last letter that Paul ever wrote. He was in prison in Rome for the final time. He knew that death was just around the corner. He writes in chapter 4, the time of my departure has come. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. He knows he's about to die. He's writing to his young son in the faith, Timothy, calling him up, calling him out, inspiring him, encouraging him to be faithful as this gospel ministry is entrusted to him. And in chapter 1, he calls upon him to be courageous. I think that's one word that we could give to it in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or, him, or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Down in verse 12, for this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. And in verse 16, the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Don't be ashamed. I'm not ashamed. Onesiphorus was not ashamed. Chapter 2, verse 1, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Timothy, be courageous. Don't be ashamed. I'm not ashamed. Onesiphorus was not ashamed. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ. In chapter 2, I think a word might be faithful. In verse 2, he says to Timothy, The things which you've, you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, 
Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy, I'm, I'm headed off the stage. These gospel truths and this word of God that has been entrusted to you, you now take it, entrust it to others who will be able to teach others. And then in chapter 2, he gives six images of how this is to be done. In verse 3, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Verse 5, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Down in verse 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And so a soldier, an athlete, a farmer, a workman. Down in verse 20, now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And then finally in verse 24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. A soldier, an athlete, a farmer, a workman, a clean vessel, a bondservant of the Lord. Timothy, be courageous. Timothy, be faithful. Chapter 3, maybe a good word is, I don't know if it's strong enough, consistently. And this is where we'll find ourselves this morning in chapter 3. But things were tough for Timothy. And maybe he thought he could hold out for just a bit, maybe go into hiding for just a bit. Maybe the tough times would pass. And Paul's going to say, oh no, Verse three, or chapter 3, verse 1, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. It's not going to go away, Timothy. You may find yourself in a culture that is swept away in a flood of sin and error. You may find it hard to stand firm and to continue because you feel like maybe you're the only one. And maybe again you're thinking if you could just hold out for a bit. Don't do that. In verse 10, you followed my teaching conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them, that from childhood you've known the sacred writings, 
which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Be courageous, Timothy. Be faithful, Timothy. Be consistent, Timothy, or continue, Timothy, or stay at it, Timothy. Continue in the things that you've learned and become convinced of. What had he learned and become convinced of? The sacred writings, which his grandmother Lois, his mother Eunice, and then the apostle Paul had taught him. When all else is turning away, you followed, continue in these things. These sacred writings that you have been taught, this scripture in verse 16 is inspired by God and it's profitable for life and godliness. There's a whole lot of things that we could say about the Word of God. I want to impress upon us four of them. There are four doctrines, if you will, teachings about the Word of God, but I think they're absolutely essential for all of us to keep in mind. The first is the doctrine of Revelation. Not the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, but what's called the doctrine of revelation. One theologian, Thiessen, put it like this. It's the act of God whereby he discloses himself or communicates truth to the mind, whereby he makes manifest to his creatures that which could not be known in any other way. We're just going to take it by implication here, but in verse 16, all Scripture the fact that you and I have the scripture is owing to the fact that God has revealed his truth to us. We talked briefly about it last week and a little bit even this morning. God is incomprehensible. There's no way that we finite creatures could know the infinite God unless he reveals Truth about himself to us. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, Moses said, but the things revealed belong to us. Brothers and sisters, it is a massive thing that God in his grace has chosen to reveal truth about himself and about a whole bunch of other things to you and to me. When we talk about the doctrine of revelation, we talk about at least a couple categories, general revelation and special revelation. General revelation, the classic texts are Psalm 19 and Romans chapter 1. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. David believed that we could go outside and we could look at the sun, the moon, and the stars, the mountains, 
and the beauty even of the flowers and the green grass. And if we had eyes to see, it would tell us of the glory of God. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 that his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made. Paul believed, probably because he'd read Psalm 19, that we could look to the natural world and what God had made and we could glean from it some truth. And it's called general revelation because it's generally made available to all of mankind and it tells us some general things about the Creator. But God has gone beyond simple general revelation, if you will, to specific revelation about himself. Throughout time, God would do this in a handful of ways, theophanies, whereby he would appear to humans, or visions or dreams. We might think of Joseph, the father of Jesus, if you remember the story. Uh, this young girl, Mary, that he was betrothed to came up pregnant. And he's thinking, oh, he's going he's to divorce her. But he was a righteous man. He wanted to do it where not a whole lot of shame would be brought upon her. But, but then a dream comes to him with very specific revelation from God. Don't divorce her. Take her as your wife. The baby's of the Holy Spirit. You'll name him Jesus. Gabriel, or Mary herself, had a visit from the angel Gabriel. You'll have a son. He'll inherit the throne of his father David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom, there will be no end. And so, as the author of Hebrews would say, in various ways, God had made himself known over time. And certainly, he made himself known in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the eternal son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity, and he became one of us. He took on flesh. And uh, John, the apostle, said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And a few verses later, he said, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, meaning the Son of God, who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. John meant when the eternal Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us and we saw him, we could see what God was like. And then, of course, special revelation in the scriptures. The psalmist said, God made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. God revealed himself and his ways to Moses, and of course Moses put it down in the pages of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And it was he who said the secret things belonged to the Lord our God, but the, secret, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words 
of this law. When he said the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, he was talking about the revealed word of God. And so when we think about the doctrine of revelation and the scripture itself, I think we've got to come away saying the Bible's a gift. It's a gift from God to us. God was not obligated to reveal himself to you and to me in the pages of Scripture. We were not deserving of it. He could have wrapped himself in darkness. He could have hidden himself in the deep corners of the universe, giving us only the light of general revelation, void of any real knowledge of himself and of his salvation. And we would have been left only to our own reason and to our own speculations as to who the creator of the universe is. But of course he didn't. He didn't wrap himself in darkness and he didn't leave us to mere reason and speculation. He said, here I am. God, show me your glory. And God said, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. Very specific stuff. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving. You and I could never know that by simply looking at a starry sky or even pondering a beautiful rose or looking under a microscope at the amazing way that these things are put together. We would never know of the holiness of God. We would never know of the forbearance of God, the patience of God, the kindness of God, the love of God. We would never know of the severity of our God and the truthfulness of our God, the love of our God, the wisdom of our God. The Bible is a gift. The doctrine of revelation God has made himself known to us. Secondly, though, is inspiration. Inspiration. This verse there, all scripture is inspired by God. Now, that's the New American Standards translation. The Greek word there is theonoustos. Theos means God. Pneuma means uh, wind or spirit or breath. Theonoustos means God breathed. And so if you have an NIV translation, it says all scripture is God breathed. I think the ESV reads all scripture is breathed out by God. Inspiration is probably not the best translation. God breathed is, is really good. Breathed out by God may be even better. If we were sticking with this oration language, we might have better said all Scripture is expired by God. When we hear the word inspiration, we think, oh, Isaiah or Paul must have gotten up one morning, walked out, saw a beautiful sunset, got inspired and wrote something beautiful and profound about God. But that's not what this means. 
All scripture is breathed out by God. All of it. Certainly Paul had in mind all of the Old Testament, but by this time, 67 AD, he probably has in mind as well those writings that were coming together and being read in the churches and recognized as authoritative apostolic truth. What would come to be known as the New Testament. Now keep your finger in 2 Timothy. I want to show you one other text. Go to your right over to 2 Peter. So if you get to the book of Revelation, you've gone a little bit too far, work back to your left to 2 Peter. Okay, Mitch. Paul is saying that all scripture, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First Samuel, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all scripture. And you're saying even the coming New Testament, Romans and Matthew, Mark, and those things were inspired by God. They were breathed out by God. I thought they were written by men. I thought Moses wrote the Pentateuch and David wrote many of the Psalms and Solomon put together the book of Solomon and Paul wrote Romans. Indeed, they were written by men. Verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Peter reflecting back on the previous paragraph, reflecting back on the transfiguration when he saw Jesus transfigured before them and the word from God, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. He says, we have the prophetic word made more sure. We've seen its fulfillment. Verse 20. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Or men born along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. When we talk about the doctrine of inspiration or say that the Bible is inspired, we're not denying that it was penned by humans. But those humans were superintended by the Holy Spirit of God. In fact, one in, defined it like this. Inspiration is the act by which God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded without error his message to mankind in the words of their original writing. In other words, God the Holy Spirit was at work in and through the human authors of the Bible, using their own personalities, their own literary styles, their own vocabularies, their own experiences, the own, their own stuff that they brought to the process. God was at work in and through those human authors of the Bible that as they wrote, they wrote exactly what God wanted written. This is the doctrine that lies behind your ability and mine to pick up this book and say, this is the word of God. No, it's not. It's written by Moses, and Isaiah, and 
David and Peter and Jude and John. Indeed it was. But those human authors of the Bible were born along by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God was at work in and through those human authors of the Bible in such a way that what they, as they wrote, they wrote exactly what God desired. And so the Bible is the revealed truth of God breathed out by him at work in and through the human authors of the scripture. Then third, it's inerrant. Inerrant. That's the negative way to say it. Inerrant, without error. The more positive way to say it would be wholly true, fully reliable. Paul Feinberg, in his great book, Inerrancy, defined it like this. Inerrancy means that when all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs, that's their original manuscripts, the, when Paul wrote Romans or Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew, those original documents. Inerrancy means that when all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original manuscripts and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with the social, physical, or life sciences. I don't want to read into the Bible here, but maybe we could say all Scripture, you might write the word revelation right there, it's, it's, by implication, we have here the revelation of God is inspired by God, so the doctrine of inspiration. And it's profitable. You might write there, inerrant. It's without error. It's wholly true. It's fully reliable in everything that it affirms. You might have noticed a couple or a few qualifications, we might call them, when all the facts are known. We are finite creatures, and we readily admit that when we come to the Scriptures, we just don't know all the facts. In many cases, we're dealing with a document over 3,000 years old, even the New Testament, some 2,000 years old. We are separated by millennia. We're separated by culture. We're separated by language. I mean, how, how, how separate we are from the original writing of this text. And so oftentimes we come to the Scripture and say, boy, I wish I, I, wish I had some more facts here to help me understand what was going on, help me understand what is being said and what it means. The scriptures in their original manuscripts, inerrancy means when all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original manuscripts and properly interpreted, there's another one. We readily admit that sometimes we don't know exactly how to interpret a particular passage of scripture. 
and this doctrine of inerrancy means that when it's properly interpreted, some would take the doctrine of inerrancy to say, the Bible speaks of the four corners of the earth. We know there's not four corners of the earth. See, the Bible's wrong. The Bible speaks of the sun rising. We know that the sun doesn't rise, therefore the Bible's wrong. And yet when we understand that the authors of Scripture and God working through those authors of Scripture are communicating to people, we understand that that's just a natural way to communicate truth. Or when Scripture approximates numbers, it wasn't 400, it was 398. Wrong. No, Scripture's just like any other kind of language. It's just like the language that you and I use. If you asked me what time it is and I said 1130, you'd say, yep, it's 1130. Some of you, nope, it's 1129. But to say 1130 is okay. The Bible uses all kinds of language just like you and I do. The extent of this inerrancy goes not just to doctrine. Some in the history of the church, in fact, over the last 50 to 100 years, have said, okay, yeah, the Bible's true when it's speaking to things like God and sin and salvation through Jesus, but if it speaks to the social sciences or the physical sciences or the life sciences, we can't trust it. But we would say no. If it's true that the God who created all things has revealed himself in the pages of Scripture, and if it's true that he inspired, he was at work in and through the human authors of the Bible in such a way that they, as they wrote, they wrote exactly what God wanted written. And if it's true that God never lies and that he knows all things, then inerrancy simply follows. Our God is not a God of deceit. And our God is not ignorant of anything. And so everything that he has revealed is absolutely true. We might not understand it. It might leave us scratching our head. We might need to wait on further facts to come to light or the age to come when all of our questions will be answered. But if God is in this, God is producing this, then it is without error, it is wholly true, it's fully reliable, which means that you and I can trust it. Charles Spurgeon, who I quoted at the beginning, I do not believe that from one cover to the other there is any mistake in, any of, in it of any sort whatever, either upon natural or physical science or upon history or anything whatever. I'm prepared to believe whatever it says and to take it believing to be the word of God. For if it is not all true, it is not worth one solitary penny to me. It may be to the man who is so wise that he can pick out the true from the false, but I am such a fool that I could not do that. If I do not have a guide there that is infallible or unable to err, I would as soon guide myself, for I shall have to do so after all. 
I shall have to be correcting the blunders of my guide perpetually. But I'm not qualified to do that, and so I am worse off than if I had not any guide at all. Sit down, reason, and let faith rise up. Trust that our God is true, reliable. So we have talked about the doctrine of revelation, that the Bible's a gift, that, that God would reveal himself and his ways to us. The doctrine of inspiration, that he practically does that in and through the human authors of the Bible to produce his word. That it is without error. It's wholly true in everything that it affirms. And finally, the authority of Scripture. Wayne Grudem puts it like this, the authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. It simply means when the Bible speaks, God speaks. The theologians would put it like this, that the Bible is the final standard or the final rule for faith and practice. When they say faith, what they mean is the things that you and I are to believe and practice, how you and I are to live. And they're affirming the authority of Scripture. It's the final standard, the final rule for what you and I are to believe and how you and I are to live. It has the authority as if God appeared to you and me right now and began to speak. He has. Wayne Mack in a little book called The Twin Pillars of the Christian Life, speaking of the Word of God and prayer. The inerrancy of Scripture and the authority of Scripture are like Siamese twins. They are inseparably joined to each other. Holy Scripture, being God's law and testimony, is true and should therefore serve as our standard for all matters of faith and practice. God's Word, being both truthful and authoritative, calls us to humble and faithful obedience in every area of which it speaks. There is no authority that is higher than that in Scripture. Wherever and on whatever subjects the Scriptures speak, one must regard them as both inerrant and authoritative. So friends, we might ask ourselves, who is God? And you might have lots of thoughts on who God is, and I might have lots of thoughts on who God is, and we could go out into our city and ask a lot of people, who is God? And they might have lots of thoughts as to who God is. At the end of the day, what's the final word? It's what God has revealed about himself in the pages of Scripture that is the final word on who he is. Who are we? I mean, just who are we as people? This whole idea of being created in the image of God, male and female, and 
with all of the dignity and all of the value that comes with that, and yet fallen in sin and all of the mess that that is made of our lives and of the world. Who are we? How is sin dealt with? I mean, how do sinful people like you and me, of which all of us are, enter into a relationship with a holy and righteous and perfect God? You might have some thoughts about that, and certainly our culture might have some thoughts about that, even in the implications of a holy God and a sinful people. But granted God's holiness and granted our sinfulness, how does a person enter into a relationship with him? At the end of the day, the final word is what has he revealed about his ways towards sinners like us? Praise God, the answer isn't law or rules or fix up yourself, sinner. But it's what? Grace, kindness, and mercy from God towards sinners like you and me. What should we believe about God, about man, about sin, about salvation, about history and where it's going in the end? This is our final word. But not only what should we believe, but how should we live? How should we treat one another? How should we work out our marriage? How should we handle our money? What do we do about this mouth that can be such a blessing and yet such a curse? What sort of things ought to be the priorities of our lives? How do we make sense of sexuality? What is biblical manhood or womanhood? What about this, that, or the other? There's a lot of flex on some things, but there's also a lot of revelation from God about how you and I are to live our lives, what he has called us to as we seek to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. So the example I often use is Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Written by the Apostle Paul. Well, who's he? I mean, he's just a dude just like the rest of us. Puts his pants on one leg at a time. He's just a guy. Just a man. who Chopped his head off and he bled to death just like any of us would do. Why in the world should I obey Ephesians chapter 5? It was written by a man. Oh, but it was written by a man in whom and through whom the Holy Spirit of God was at work to produce an absolutely perfect word which is authoritative, such that when the Scripture speaks, God speaks. And it's not merely Paul's thought on the matter. It's the word of God to me and to all of us husbands in here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, Peter, live with your wives in an understanding way. Grant them honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Well, who's Peter? He's a man in and through whom the Spirit of God was at work to produce his word, and it's true and it's authoritative. I'm to obey, and when I don't, it's sin, and I'm to repent and confess my sins and thank God for Jesus 
and the forgiveness of sins that we have in him. Folks, we don't stand above the Bible and make judgments of it. We sit beneath it, if you will, and seek to conform all of our minds and all of our will to the word of God. Mark glanced at it through his prayers. But you've heard before, how do you get a good grip on the Bible? You hear it. How do you do that? You, you come to a church that teaches the Word of God. You listen to it on your phone, being read to you. you. You go to good Bible studies that are tethered to the Scripture. That's great to hear the Word of God, but you can't get a good grip that way. You also got to read it. You got to sit down and read the Scriptures for yourself. Oh, what a gift that every one of us can hold in our hands, the Word of God. But even then, you can't get a good grip on it. You got to study it. What's the difference between reading and studying? Pen, paper, and pace. Slow down, you take out some paper and a pen, and you just slowly work your way through a passage of Scripture. Prayerful, humble, Lord, teach me your ways. But even then, you can't get a good grip. You've also got to memorize favorite verses, pertinent passages, that kind of thing, where you're just storing up God's Word in your heart. But even then, you can't meditate. Well, that one's so important. You put that one on the thumb because it can touch all the rest. You meditate on what you hear, what you read, what you study, and what you memorize. What does it mean to meditate, to ponder, to think, to pray, to ponder, to think, to pray, to ponder on it, to think about it, to pray through it? And then the palm is application. James, the brother of the Lord, said, Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Boy, Mitch, you can quote a lot of Bible. Yep. And it equals zero when it comes to spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is by taking the Bible that we know and applying it to our lives. He who hears my word and acts upon it that man shall be like one who built his house upon a rock. The winds came, the rains fell, burst against that house, and yet that house stood because it had been built upon the rock of hearing the word of God and acting upon it. May God give us grace. May God give us grace, and we thank him for the object of all the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ, his son, whom he sent to save sinners like you and me because we stumble and fall in obedience to this word all the time. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the focus of this book, and we praise God for him who came to be a great savior and a wonderful leader of our lives. If you've never put your trust in Jesus, if you've never become a follower of Jesus, come see me this morning. I'd love to tell you more about him. Let's pray, and then we're gonna stand and sing our way out this morning. Father, we thank you for this book because it reveals to us you. Might we be men and women um, 
who read and study and memorize and meditate and apply the word of God because it is, it is here that we come to know you. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.